The Women Like You podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet today. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Exercise plays an enormous role. Look, I actually don't think that the effect of exercise on insulin sensitivity can be overstated. When I do need to look presentable, I have the best suggestion for a product. It has literally revived that disgusting oily look that you get. Hello and welcome to the Women Like You podcast. It's the podcast for women who hate working out but know they should. I'm Gab. I'm an audio producer and journalist. I'm Sarah. I'm a GP and I work in fertility and women's health. And we are still in lockdown. We are recording this in our spare rooms. So if you hear the uh, neighbour's dog or my dog or some aircraft or whatever, you'll you'll know why. Yeah, or your squeaky chair. <laughs> oh, yeah, my squeaky chair. Sorry. <laughs> we are so excited to be building our little community of exercise sloths, women just like you who've always struggled with exercise. You know, this stuff really doesn't come easily to us. It's hard. It feels like crap most of the time. And we have to work really hard at it. But that's okay. That's what this podcast and this Women Like You community is for. On this episode, we'll look at why you might be at risk of type 2 diabetes and how exercise can help you stay healthy. And my little tip for a brilliant hair product for those days when you don't have any time to do your hair after exercise and you're a sweaty mess. And let's be honest, that's basically most days. So you have some exciting news this week, which is amazing and makes me feel so great every time I think about it. What happened to you this week, Sarah? (laughs) I got my second vaccination. So I am fully COVID vaccinated now, which as, uh, look, I'm a healthcare worker, so I was in phase 1B of the rollout. And now I am very, very fortunate to have completed both of my vaccinations. And look, this is really just a shout out. If you are eligible to get your coronavirus vaccine, please go and get vaccinated as soon as possible. This is not only an amazing thing that you'll be able to do for yourself, but you're actually providing an enormous service and an enormous gift to your community. So if you are eligible, we'll pop a link to the COVID vaccine eligibility bizzo um, and uh, and you can click that link, see if you're eligible, book a, book a slot in, get vaccinated. Yeah, and, and that brings us really, really nicely to um, something that we wanted to talk about because, you know, we are in lockdown. It's It's gone on for a few weeks. It'll go on for a few more at this stage. We don't really know. Um, and different parts of Australia, you know, have experienced lockdown at different times, snap lockdowns or, or longer term. And so something that um, you did brilliantly over the last week, Sarah, is you put together some, some mental health tips, uh, particularly uh, for when you're in lockdown. Now, I mean, to be honest, when I when, when you kind of compiled these tips, I was like, well, I could use these anytime, not just not just for lockdown, but but they are really brilliant, particularly at a time when you might feel like the walls are closing in and um, you've got a little bit of cabin fever. Um, so do you want to run us through your lockdown mental health tips? So these are just a, a handful of tips that I think can be helpful to fall back upon, particularly if you're just not sure kind of what that first step looks like in in caring for your mental health in, in a difficult time. The thing I like about these is that they are entirely free. You don't need any special equipment. You don't need any money. You don't need anything apart from your eyes, 
and a little bit of time to be able to uh, check in with these. So I think first thing I like to remind patients of is how important it is to actually see some sunshine. So when your retinas are exposed to natural bright light in the morning, and interestingly, it's even above head light that seems to have the most potent effect, it helps to release some serotonin from our brains. And we know that serotonin is feel-good. It's a feel-good hormone. It's a feel-good neurotransmitter, but it can help you to feel a little bit calmer and a little bit more relaxed. So that's a really simple thing that you can do is get a little bit of sunshine first thing in the morning. Wow. Second thing, find the horizon. And I think we spend so much time, you know, in front of our laptops, in front of our phones, in front of the TV, where we're often, we've got this very kind of narrow focused visual field. When your eyes are actually able to take in a more panoramic view, you actually can calm a certain area in your brainstem that can result in reduced anxiety. So, you know, it doesn't mean that you need to get to the ocean and and see a big horizon, but even if you can just widen your view, get some panoramic vision, that can actually really significantly reduce your stress in in the short term. Cool. Okay, so number one, we've got see the sun. Number two, find the horizon. What's number three? Number three, breathe a little deeper. So I know that we all know the value in breath exercises in helping to reduce stress and anxiety, but I've just popped a little link in there um, for something called box breathing. And so box breathing essentially means that you breathe in for four counts, you'll then hold your breath for four counts, you'll breathe out for four counts, and then you'll hold your breath again for four counts. And so you can think of this as as drawing a little box in your in your mind. Um, there's a YouTube clip that I'll pop in the show notes that really explains it perfectly easily, but I don't even think it has to be box breathing, but I think taking a few seconds out of your day to do some slow, focused, relaxed breathing, again, can just help to turn down that stress response that I think we're all feeling. Mm, I'm feeling calmer just thinking about it. And my last tip is exercise, obviously. <laughs> Look, I think we all know how important exercise is for our mental health. But I think that motivation just becomes so much more difficult in a lockdown. So, you know, I want you to continue to try and strive for that 22 minutes of exercise each day. But a bare minimum, just try at least to keep that two-minute hack going. Not because, you know, it will be disappointing if you, you know, lose your mojo in a lockdown. You've got to give yourself some some slack. But I think that our brains really thrive on a bit of routine and a bit of predictability. And so if you can sort of allow your body to know that each day it's going to get a little bit of exercise, it's just going to, again, it's just going to be a tiny tool that's going to help to reduce stress during these really difficult times. I love it. So see the sun, find the horizon, breathe a little deeper and exercise. Uh, The uh, mental health tips. And actually, Sarah, you put this together beautifully on our Instagram. If you want to kind of see it all visually play out, you can head to at Women Like You podcast on Insta um, and see see all the details there as well. Amazing tips. And yeah, I've already been doing the um, the find the horizon thing, just walking out onto the balcony even, you know, something I rarely do. But now I'm like, no, I need to I need to feel like the world is bigger than uh, than my lounge room at the moment. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, lockdown just makes us feel so hemmed in, I think, rat in a cage. So anything that you can do to uh, to feel a little bit more at one with a greater space, I think, helps. Despite all my rage, I am still just a rat in a cage. <laughs> um, sorry, just smashing <sighs> pumpkins for your, for your morning uh, or evening or whatever time you're listening. <laughs> 
I've got aircraft here. I've got aircraft too. Just uh, uh, the joys of recording in a lockdown in your spare room uh, with no soundproofing capabilities. Uh, apologies for the aircrafts that you will hear flying over during this recording. <laughs> so how did you uh, How did you go? I think you were going to uh, have a crack at the seven-minute workout this yes, week. Yes, I did. I did the seven-minute workout. I used the little YouTube video um, that's in the show notes of last episode and I found that really helpful because, yeah, Sarah, one of the biggest things for me when I do those kind of high-intensity interval training sessions is that I get really confused about where I'm up to in the in the workout and um, just having that little visual. I mean, I, ne- I, I kind of went through the workout first to make sure that I knew what each of the exercises were and then when I press play I mean yeah damn you press play and you're in like you're straight into those jumping jacks (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it was really great and you know even like I would say there was like I think it was the push-up with rotations that um that nearly did me in however the whole time you know even as I was kind of getting more and more tired I still just reminded myself it's only seven minutes like it's only seven minutes even the 30 second plank I was like oh my god this plank feels like it's going forever but I just reminded myself it's only seven minutes you can do seven minutes. It's okay. That's and it. then all of a sudden it was only over. Only seven minutes. It's only 30 seconds at a go. So I think that, you know, mentally, again, you know, we're not necessarily feeling at our mental toughest at the moment. And so, you know, you tell yourself, look, the duration of this, just 30 seconds. I can cope with that. Duration of this, just seven minutes. I can cope with that. Um, yeah. Hey, um, something that uh, I, I, I have to mention because she texted me after last week's episode saying that she has appeared in every single episode so far uh, or in the last, I think the last four, <laughs> the last three episodes in a row. So she's like, I'm going for a four-run streak. Um, is my sister-in-law, L? Yes, L. I'm going to mention you again. Because we can you make said, that happen, L. <laughs> we can make it happen every week, actually. The little L segment of the show. Um, she sent me a text which really got me thinking. And uh, it's something that, um, yeah, we would really love the Women Like You community to help us out with. So this is to all the mums out there. We need tips from mothers for other mothers about how to fit exercise into into that busy mum life. Elle sent me this text during the week saying, my main issue is having to be on daughter duty in the morning. Um, my, my niece is three years old. She is the cutest three-year-old ever. And I can say that because I'm completely biased as her auntie. But yeah, Elle said- I'm not her auntie and I'd agree with you. Like, <laughs> that's just I you. actually think that's that's yeah, pretty, it holds up. Fair. Yeah, the science yeah. holds up. So, yeah, Elle said, my main issue is having to be on daughter duty in the morning because my husband starts so early, starts work, that is. Um, but then I have to go to work as soon as he finishes and then I don't finish until dinner time. And then am I going to do anything after that? Unlikely. So Elle's day obviously is, yeah, very split into my brother doing his work. She's on, you know, the kind of babysitting duties and then that switches over and she's at work. And then by the end of the evening, you actually want to spend some time, you know, after you've done like the the dinner bath bed routine, you actually want to spend some time with, with your partner or your family and maybe sit on the couch and, and maybe kind of catch up on some reading or some podcasts or, or watching some TV and, you know, just kind of chill out. You know, you don't really at that point then want to go, oh, now I have to do something really unpleasant that I hate doing anyway. So uh, please, yeah, to the mothers listening, if you've found really good ways to get little bits of exercise into your day or you have any tips at all for Elle um, and other mums like Elle, please let us know. Sarah and I aren't mums, so we're not going to try and, (laughs) we're not going to try and tell you what to do. Um, I hear mums really like that. (laughs) 
really like being told, really like being lectured about how they should be doing things better by people who have no experience with uh, with what they're going through. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, if if, uh, if you have ideas, please let us know. Workout suggestions as well. That would be great. Just hit us up at Women Like You Podcast on Instagram. I've got some kind of surprising news, actually, which is not surprising to you because you're a doctor. But um, a friend of mine uh, recently reached out to say that they've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And I was completely shocked because it's not someone that I would associate with type 2 diabetes. Uh, they're in their 30s. I would have thought relatively healthy. And yet it really it really shocked me. And so I thought it would be a good time for you and I to talk about this because, you know, I know that you know, we've spoken about it a lot and um, it's something that, that you're obviously facing a lot as a doctor and, and seeing patients every day. Um, I had a little bit of a dig around on uh, the Diabetes Australia website. I did not realise this. It's the fastest growing chronic condition in Australia. It's increasing at a faster rate than heart disease and cancer. It is uh, recognised as the world's fastest growing chronic condition. Um, it's the biggest challenge facing Australia's health system, other than COVID, obviously. Its total annual cost is nearly $15 billion and nearly 2 million Australians have type have diabetes, type 1 and 2, which surprisingly uh, and kind of scarily includes about 500,000 people living with silent or undiagnosed type 2 diabetes. Exactly, and I think that's where... I think today's episode actually has some power is in getting people to have a think about whether or not they might actually be at risk of type 2 diabetes themselves. Mm, they could be one of those 500,000 people living with it without knowing. Or I know that there's something called pre-diabetes as well. So um, I'm going to shut up and let you talk about this because this is your ballpark. But I guess, yeah, my, my my biggest question, the one that's been on my mind the most since hearing this news from my friend is, Sarah, what the hell is type 2 diabetes? It's a progressive condition in which the body essentially becomes more resistant to the normal effects of insulin. So without us getting too deep into the the nitty gritty, you can think of insulin as, look, it's a peptide hormone that's produced by the pancreas and it regulates the metabolism of carbohydrates. And so it allows your body to use glucose for energy. So you can think of insulin being the almost the vehicle that helps to move sugar, that you have digested in your diet into the bloodstream and then from the bloodstream into the body cells to be used as energy. In type 2 diabetes, as the body becomes less sensitive to the effects of insulin, it pumps out more and more insulin to maintain safe glucose levels in the blood, if that makes sense. Listening to all of that, that sounds like it's it's very heavily associated with what you're eating. Yeah, so food absolutely plays an enormous part because it's the food that we eat that's providing energy to the cells in our body and the most readily available energy for use in our body is glucose or, or carbohydrates. And so it's the role of insulin in moving glucose around the body that is so important and that in type 2 diabetes what we find is that our body is becoming less sensitive to the effects of insulin and so we see sugar levels rise and sugar can be quite toxic to our cells if we can't get it into the cells appropriately. Do genes play a role in this? I know, I know obviously it's very completely different from, from type 1 diabetes, but um, can genes play a role, you know, your family history play a role in, in being higher risk of type 2 diabetes? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a really strong hereditary component in type 2 diabetes, which is why I actually think it's so important to find out if there is a known history of type 2 diabetes in your family, because it might be that these are just things that we don't talk about 
terribly much. Like you might not know that in fact your, you know, your uncles or your aunties or your grandparents had type 2 diabetes. So just because mum or dad might not have type 2 diabetes doesn't mean that there is not still a genetic predisposition. Look, there's no one single gene mutation that leads to type 2 diabetes. So we think that there's a multitude of genes that are probably a sort of play a part. Um, but finding out if you do have a family history, I think is a is a really important thing for us all to do. So we can assess our own personal risk of developing type two. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, you know, as we're kind of going through this um, sort of checklist, you know, asking asking family and, and finding out that information, what other um, symptoms or areas of concern, you know, should I be looking out for? You know, if this is something like it's kind of really got me thinking and I actually want to go get tested and and you know, kind of find out what's going on. What sort of symptoms should you be looking out for? So it's interesting, sometimes in very early diabetes, there might not be too many symptoms at all. And the symptoms can be fairly vague. So the sorts of things that you might notice is um, becoming excessively thirsty or passing a bit more urine than you might have used to, um, feeling tired and lethargic. And again, that's, you know, it's not very specific. I think a lot of us are feeling pretty tired and lethargic at the moment. Um, always feeling hungry. And that, I think that's an interesting, an interesting one. If you feel as though you just can't delay your meals or, or skip meals if you need to, um, because you're always feeling hungry, then that could be a little warning sign. Oftentimes, cuts will heal a bit more slowly. There might be sort of increased risk of skin infections. Look, you might notice some some visual changes, mood swings, headaches. Look, there's a lot of different potential symptoms out there. And I think, you know, ultimately, if you've noticed any significant change in your health, like increased thirst, increased urine, increased weight gain, look, these are things that should trigger you to think about the possibility of pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes and uh, and then having a chat to your doctor about it. Yeah, wow. The other thing that can be helpful if you are wondering if you yourself are at risk is you can use something called the OSD risk calculator. This is a calculator that you can you can look at online and we'll pop the link uh, in the show notes. But it's a little assessment tool and it will run through some of the risk factors for diabetes, including family history, including lifestyle, including waste measurements. And uh, and it can give you a pretty good assessment of what your own personal risk of developing type 2 diabetes in the next five years looks like. If a patient, like, you know, if I come in tomorrow um, uh, to look into this, what are the things that you're you're looking for? What are you asking the patient about? So we're definitely going to talk to them about family history. And, you know, really, is there a family history of diabetes, pre-diabetes, even a family history of gestational diabetes can increase your own risk. It's also important for us to have a look at other medical problems that may increase the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And an important one for women to be aware of is that polycystic ovarian syndrome does actually have a uh, a higher association with the development of type 2 diabetes and gestational diabetes than women that do not have PCOS. So again, if you know that you have PCOS, I think it's really important that you do talk to your GP about getting a a diabetes test done, probably on an annual basis. The other things that I'd always talk to uh, my patients about is their body weight and their body habitus. So when we talk body body habitus, body (laughs) habitus is not, and this is where I think there can be a lot of misinformation out there about you know BMI and risk. It's it's not as simple as heavier weight 
equals higher risk. It also has to do with where you carry that additional weight. So if you're uh, you're like myself, look, I, I do not have the hourglass figure. If I gain weight, my weight goes straight around my middle. So I'm considered an apple shape. Whereas I think uh, you know you've got a you've got a beautiful waist, Gab, and uh, and so I think that you would have you know more of that hourglass sort of pear shaped, whereas I'm way more apple shaped, and that apple shape actually carries a much higher risk of developing insulin resistance and diabetes. Wow, I would I would, I just would have thought yeah it's BMI it's it's you know putting on weight anywhere, um, and I mean obviously they're. You know, you're not saying they're not risk factors, but yeah, I, I had no idea. It matters where on your body you actually store that weight. Yeah, 100%. And this is why I think waist measurements can be also a really good way of determining if you are at risk. Because look, you might not have a perfect BMI, but as a woman, if you have a waist measurement below 80 centimetres, your chance of developing type 2 diabetes in the next five years is less than a woman who carries a bit more central weight or has some central obesity and a waist measurement above 80 centimetres. Wow. And and just while we're talking about weight, obviously, I know that you and I say this all the time that, you know, exercises, we're not doing this to, to be skinny. We're not doing this to be aesthetically pleasing. And, and we think all of that, you know, social conditioning we've had our entire lives is bullshit. And it is. But in terms of this type of discussion, you know, talking about body weight, we're purely talking about this in relation to health. And obviously, type 2 diabetes is... Um, you know, is, is a serious thing. And so, yeah, I think I just want to reiterate, I know that we bang on about, don't worry about the weight. Um, in this case, I think, you know, it's, it's a very important yeah, this part is, of this discussion. That, that's right. Look, this is one of those, this is one of those discussions when I think, you know, maintaining a healthy weight and a healthy weight doesn't, there's, there's no absolute number that a healthy weight is, but, you know, reducing central obesity, reducing waist measurements, we know has a huge impact on improving insulin sensitivity and preventing diabetes. Okay. So speaking of exercise then, you know, and and the fact that this is an exercise podcast, um, well, for women who hate it, um, does exercise play a role in uh, reversing type 2 diabetes? Exercise plays an enormous role. Look, I, I actually don't think that the effect of exercise on insulin sensitivity can be overstated. So, Remember, type 2 diabetes is a problem of insulin resistance. So we know that there are there are hundreds of studies now that show that increasing exercise increases your body's cells' sensitivity to insulin, which means that you can then start to produce less insulin to still maintain those nice, healthy sugar levels. And, uh, and that, in fact, there's mounting evidence that a combination of both sort of cardio endurance type exercise, so, you know, you're walking, perhaps a little bit of running or cycling in combination with some resistance training probably provides the most potent effect on both managing and and very likely reversing type 2 diabetes. Okay. And so um, I guess that kind of brings me to like, you know, if, if, if I go get my test done and I do have it, how does my life change then? What do I do? Should I be alarmed? You know, what's what's the kind of thing to, to be one of those people who might be able to reverse the diabetes? So look, I think if you receive a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, then the time to act on that information is as soon as possible. There's something called the legacy effect in diabetes that essentially the sooner 
that you can normalise blood sugars, the less chance there is of developing the complications of diabetes in, in later life. So if you are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in your 30s, like your friend has been, mm-hmm. um, then you really want to try and get on top of that type 2 diabetes whilst you're in your 30s. You know, I just think that perhaps one of the problems comes when people are a little bit complacent and they're like, oh, well, I'm only in my 30s, so it's probably not that big a deal to get on top of it. But the reality is that the sooner that you can actually work towards normalising those insulin and glucose levels, the benefits and the prevention of complications of diabetes are huge. Wow. So what are some of the things that, um, that, that I would be doing if I, if I had a diagnosis and I do have it? I would say, look, I think ultimately it sort of comes down to to three key things. Well, I should say three key non-pharmaceutical things. So there'll there'll be times when it's appropriate and important for patients to be started on Uh, on glycemic medications, um, so medicines to help to improve their glycemic control, their sugar control, improve the way that their carbohydrate metabolism is occurring. Um, But in terms of things that a newly diagnosed type 2 diabetic can do to improve their outcomes would be firstly to monitor their dietary carbohydrates, Um, so eating a lower glycemic index diet. So I think we're probably relatively familiar with the concept of of glycemic index. So very refined white carbohydrates, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they can be really instantly sort of absorbed into the bloodstream and give you a huge spike in your insulin. So Mm -hmm. we want to tend to avoid those sorts of foods. And if we're incorporating carbohydrates into our diet, we want complex carbohydrates. So carbohydrates that are are tethered to, uh, to fiber and carbohydrates that are you know, complicated that actually take a bit of energy for your body to break down. Oh, um, that's what it means. Okay. I just thought they were yeah. complex, like they just had a bit of a complex, you know, they're just difficult, <laughs> difficult carbohydrates. That's what I thought so, complex carbohydrates were. <laughs> so I think a good way to think about it is like, for instance, a glass of apple juice. So where you've taken out all of the, you know, the natural fibres associated with the apple, um, that's going to be a really high glycemic index food or something to consume and it's going to spike your insulin levels. Whereas in theory, if you're eating a whole apple, you're also getting all of the natural cellulose and fibre with that. So you're actually going to get a much more prolonged release of sugar rather than a spike of sugar. And you're going to get a a softer insulin release as well. So you're not going to get that spike of insulin. So watching your dietary carbohydrates and eating a lower glycemic index diet is so important. Watching your weight, and I think we've already spoken about this. We're not talking about getting into your getting into your bikini for for summer. For summer, we're yeah, talking, having a thigh gap. Yes, <laughs> we are talking about just making sure that you're not carrying a lot of additional adipose tissue, fat tissue, particularly around the centre of your body in that apple shape that will increase your risk of of diabetes. So really, or not just increase your risk of diabetes, but prolong your diabetes. So. Reduction in waist measurements have been shown to improve insulin sensitivity. So just remember that women, we should be aiming for a, uh, a waist measurement below 80 centimetres. For men, a waist measurement below 94 centimetres. And exercise. Just remember to get some regular daily exercise. Anything that gets you moving will increase your insulin sensitivity. And it seems that a decent bout of exercise, so we're talking you know, 30 minutes of moderate to high intensity exercise, 
can not only have an effect on your immediate insulin sensitivity, but it will, in fact, improve your insulin sensitivity for at least 24 hours, possibly more. Wow, that's huge. Can I ask a dumb question? Uh, what I've got two dumb questions actually. Uh, the Shoot. first, the first is uh, like diabetes. You know, say I have type two and I do nothing about it. What actually happens to me down the line? So, if you do nothing about your type two diabetes um, and you continue to perhaps gain weight because insulin is also uh, it's a pro weight storage hormone, so if you have lots and lots of high circulating insulin levels, it becomes that much more easy to store fat. So it becomes a bit of a self-professing prophecy. Um, But what will happen is that these high levels of sugar circulating in the blood will ultimately start to affect uh, the different cells in your body. We know that untreated diabetes is associated with visual loss, so diabetic retinopathy. It's associated with kidney failure and is the leading cause of kidney failure in Australia and the leading cause of people needing to be on dialysis in Australia. It can affect your brain cells, so it can affect your neurons and increase your risk of developing vascular dementia. Um, So it affects the big and small blood vessels in your body, so it also increases your risk of developing heart disease, uh, you know, having a heart attack. So I don't think it can be overstated how important that legacy effect is. Mm. So the earlier that you get your diabetes under control, the less likely it is that you're going to develop these secondary complications of diabetes. Um, Look, it, It can't be avoided in every single case, but we just know again and again and again that early glycemic control results in decreased complications down the line. Awesome. And the second question is, what is pre-diabetes? So pre-diabetes, well, there's there's sort of two main ways that we can think of pre-diabetes. Firstly, insulin resistance. And I think that's probably the most critical key diabetic change that we see. So again, before we technically meet the diagnostic criteria to be, you know, to be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, um, we tend to see this progressive increase in insulin levels and a progressive decrease in the body's sensitivity to those insulin levels before we are strictly diabetic. And so it's it's all of the same stuff. So we know that, that, as I said, women with polycystic ovarian syndrome are at a seemingly increased risk of developing insulin resistance and therefore diabetes. And so you know, pre-diabetes is considered to be more reversible than diabetes, although I think they live on a continuum. And this is where, you know, really getting stuck into, you know, healthy eating, weight loss if it is required, and regular exercise can really sort of reverse that insulin sensitivity problem and reverse your likelihood that that pre-diabetes turns into real diabetes. Oh my God, you're amazing. You know that? You are amazing. I I mean, I'm just absolutely flawed. Not only, I I know how brilliant you are, but like, it's just incredible (laughs) the way that you're able to kind of dissect this stuff and explain it. And, and, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's scary, but it's also, you know, okay, cool. You know, you've given me kind of tools to. Yeah, look, it's scary, but it is manageable. And I think in, in younger people and perhaps people with a new diagnosis, um, there is a lot that you can actually do. This is not something that you just have to sort of attack passively or can only be managed with medications. Um, medications play a really important role for some people with diabetes, 
but there are a number of people with diabetes that really can manage their symptoms and and you know reduce the likelihood that they develop secondary complications of diabetes by focusing on healthy lifestyle, regular exercise, low glycemic index, eating and weight management. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'm going to go get tested this week, um, and yeah, I'll see. Cool, cool, cool. I'll, I'll see what happens. I'll uh, I'll let you know in the next episode how we go. Yeah. I get a fasting blood test done once a year for this reason because I have PCOS. Fire um, crotch. And yep. Fire crotch. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, and look, it was two years ago, um, or back in 2019, that I could see that each year my fasting glucose and fasting insulin levels were increasing. And I can tell you with 100% certainty, the other thing that was increasing at that time was my waist measurement. And so, you know, through diet and exercise, I've been able to reverse my pre-diabetes, although, you know, I'm always going to be at risk. I have a family history of type 2 diabetes and I have polycystic ovarian syndrome myself. So jump online, check out the OSD risk calculator and, uh, you know, just make an appointment with your GP. Go and get a fasting blood test. It's easy. You know how last episode we were talking about the Women Like You survey that we sent out to some of our followers? Yes, uh, yes, yes. I, I, one of the questions was, you know, like what kinds of things can we talk about on the podcast that would help? And one of the responses was so great. It was basically, you know, can you recommend some kind of dry shampoo or some kind of product to help me, you know, when I have no time in the morning to, you know, shower and shampoo after a workout? I've just got to basically have a quick shower, get ready, get to work, but I still need to look Kind of Leg it to work, but try yeah. not to look just sweaty and disgusting. Sweaty and disgusting. And um, <laughs> I loved it so I much. I usually just go with sweaty and disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, actually, you know, that's kind of the best part about working from home. And um, if I do if I do have uh, Zoom meetings, I'm just like, camera off, baby. Today is one of those days. Um, but when I do need to look presentable, I have the best suggestion for a product. Uh, let me just uh, grab it from the table behind me. Okay, so this is, the product is, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's maybe Kuhn, K-E-U-N-E. 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 Kuhn, 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 Kuhn. Anyway, um, it's called Dry Texturizer and it's basically a hairspray, um, but it's dry. And so you spray it in, it gives your hair volume and texture, but yeah, it's basically sort of dry and chalky, um, which sounds terrible, but it absolutely works. Um, and I highly recommend it. I mean, I'll be honest, I have, you know, thinnish kind of blonde hair, so it's obviously not going to work for every um, every hair type, but um, give this a crack. And yeah, it, it it's definitely something that's worked for me and kind of given, given me a new lease on life after I've done Kuhn. a sweaty workout. Kuhn. Dry Kuhn. texturizer. Better than sweaty scalp. <laughs> sweaty, dank, oily, stuck to your face scalp. It has literally revived that disgusting oily look that you get after um, sweat done. The Women Like You podcast is produced by me, Gab Burke, and music is by Hamish Camilleri. Thank you for stopping by. Make sure that you like, follow, and share. You can get in touch with us on Instagram at Women Like You Podcast and let us know how you're going building your exercise habit. I'm Gab. And I'm Sarah. And on the next episode, we'll look at negative self-talk and why what you say to yourself matters. You. Mwah. Love it. All right, my love. All right. Is that a wrap? I think, I think we're good. Cool. Cool.